Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we bring you an interview with Kevin McEwen of Black Pistol Fire. Kevin and his bandmate Eric Owen met in Canada in elementary school and took slightly winding separate roads to Austin, Texas, where they'd eventually form Black Pistol Fire. Before that, Kevin had a lot of ups and downs in music while holding down a full-time job in Toronto. Kevin and I talked about the challenges and opportunities of having a duo, the evolution of their sound, and what he has to do on the guitar to round out their music. We also talk about their upcoming album, Hope in Hell, which is produced by Vance Powell. And after the interview, you'll hear Kevin play Level, Hope in Hell, and Don't Be Cruel. And there's a Spotify playlist for his episode in the show notes. If you like what we're doing here, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate you helping to spread the word. And I want to tell you quickly about Sunset Lake CBD, our great sponsor. I've talked about them before. I use their products every day. And in this chaotic world, it gives me a little bit of calm and relaxation. You can get 15% off your first order when you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15. Now let's get into this interview with Kevin McEwen of Black Pistol Fire. All right, I'm here with Kevin McEwen of Black Pistol Fire. Hey, Kevin, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, thanks for having me. And thank you for joining. Um, I'm excited to hear about the music that you guys have coming out, but I have to go all the way back to the beginning and ask you first if you have a first musical memory. I think my first uh, musical crush, or I, I remember being extremely young, maybe about, uh, maybe five or six, and my grandma was a, a massive Elvis Presley fan, and she would constantly play his music and um my parents too loved loved elvis as well but every time i would go stay with my grandma in the summertime sometimes on the weekends she would always put on elvis presley videos and his music and she bought me all kinds of big huge you know graphic colored photo books of elvis and she she had a a, a little tiny elvis uh suit tailored for me i remember getting fitted for it and <laughs> and it had rhinestones on it. Instead of Elvis on the back, she she printed it in rhinestones, Kelvis. And uh, as I got older, I would, you know, perform around the house for her family. But I never told any of my friends that, and I, uh, I still choose not to. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, was your family musical? Was there a lot of music going on around your house when you were growing up? Yeah, funny enough, there was a lot of music. Uh, my dad played guitar. I always loved the idea of somebody sitting around uh, the house uh, at parties playing guitar, and then uh, the f- everybody would gather around, listen, sing along. So I always wanted to join in with my dad. So I ended up learning guitar from my dad. He taught me. Some music was just always kicking around our family all the time, and my parents were just massive, massive music fans. Their record collections were... I, I, I still to this day, I'm so grateful that they had exposed me to that because everything from the Beatles, Stones, to the, some early blues records, Van Morrison, that stuff was the stuff that I just latched onto at such an early age. It was funny when I would go to school and try to like, you know, tell my friends about, oh, I just heard this, this really, really great little Richard record last night. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? Offspring, Green Day, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? As you started to grow up a little bit um, and, and get beyond your parents' influences, anything that you remember that kind of grabbed your attention or, or or made a huge impact on you? Well, lucky enough, I've been fortunate because my dad's always had really good taste in music, and he's always had a really good ear for good music. So around the house, there was always stacks of records, Neil Young, Crazy Horse, Beatles, Stones, old blues stuff like Rory Gallagher and Muddy Waters, to early garage rock stuff. So I always just ended up digging whatever he had lying around the house anyways. So he's got really good taste in music. And anytime I've ever branched out of like, oh, there's a new band. Uh, you should check out like a band like My Morning Jacket. And he's like, oh, yeah, I love those guys. Yeah, they got that song Golden. It's great. I'm like, oh, you already know. You already know. <laughs> well, all right. 
And I always thought that was great that he uh, he loved that stuff. But the first, I think, maybe left turn I took was maybe more of an aggressive uh, side. Like I maybe I started listening to like Silverchair or uh, so in maybe grade eight. Or or grade nine, right before high school, mm-hmm. listening to uh, some of that stuff, uh, pop punk stuff uh, that a lot of my friends were listening to. But you know, it was f- funny. I'd always listen to that stuff, but then I would like snap right back, like a rubber band, snap back to the uh, the stuff that I loved, like some of that older stuff. I don't think cool. that ever I ever outgrew any of that stuff. I got I went down the road the road of uh, listening to songs and music and bands and thinking, "Oh man, well, what inspired those guys to make that record?" and then going and doing research and be like, "Oh, they were inspired by so and so, so and so, so and so." Uh, so that led me on on a path to a lot of really great music. I got a little two year old uh, guy at home. He's turning two in about a week, but his name's Waylon. I throw on some of the same music I I was exposed to when I was a kid, and he naturally gravitates to it. Because sometimes my uh, wow. my wife will throw on something like you know some trap music to see if he like oh maybe he'll like this new Post Malone song or something. and then mm-hmm. and then you know he he's aware of it. But then as soon as I throw on like you know some Chuck Berry or some you know some early rock and roll blues and stuff he just starts moving and shaking and uh i don't know how much of that stuff is just like maybe it's dna i don't know you guys have a uh, an awesome live presence and and great performances do you remember uh, a l- early live show or concert that you went to that kind of grabbed your attention I think my very first concert uh, I ever went to was actually me, Eric, and a few of other our friends. Uh, we went to a Weezer concert in Hamilton, Ontario, and I remember that was like my first rock show, rock concert. And I remember thinking like, "Whoa, you know, like that was loud, bombastic guitar- guitars and really great melodies in in a full packed arena." I just, you know, I remember getting struck pretty hard by that, thinking whoa, this is something that uh, is resonating with me. And I, I don't know. And it's funny too. Uh, there's a lot of uh, weird coincidences uh, along your uh, your timeline sometimes. But uh, a few years ago, uh, it was about two years ago, we played a private party for um, uh, a celebrity who uh, was a, uh, man, I, why is the name escaping me? Do you know who uh, Will Farrell's writing partner is? Oh, at, at, was it Adam McKay? Adam McKay, Adam McKay. So Adam McKay had a, a birthday party. Adam McKay had a birthday party, and he uh, he had a bunch of bands on the roster. He had like five bands, and he and we were one of the bands. Uh, it was um, it was us. <laughs> funny funny roster. Us Moby. I don't know if you remember Moby. Yeah yeah of course yeah. And then Rivers uh, from Weezer. Rivers Cuomo uh, was doing a, an acoustic set, and J. Roddy Walson in the business. Those were like the four bands. It was funny because we all had to share a dressing room. Rivers was warming up in the shower, like, you know, in the shower, sitting on a chair with his guitar. And he was just strumming uh, in the garage. And that was like my favorite. Still, I still love that song. And he's just warming up to that, uh, singing it in the garage. And I was just thinking, (laughs) this is insane. And I just had to go in and just say, hey, man, you guys were like my first. You were my very first rock concert. Uh, he seemed a little bit nervous. I think he just got nervous energy about him, but he was like, oh, that's cool, man. Uh, I'm just, I don't know what to play tonight. Uh, you got any suggestions? And I said, I don't know. Uh, I was like, you, you know, I think you could, you're pretty safe with anything you play, man. You're, you're going to be great. And uh, so I, I just remember that was like a full circle uh, wow. thing. Of, I, wow. And we actually got a chance to open for those guys up in, in Aspen maybe five, six years ago. And that was a mind blow too. But uh, that was the first real concert that... Uh, I remember going to that, that hit me, but the first like real eye opening, like knowing like, Hey, this is what I want to do that. I think that came a little later when, uh, we all started going to music festivals like Bonnaroo and, uh, some of those like, you know, four day music fest where you camp out and it was very, you know, really yeah. great loving environment. And it was all just about nonstop music. Like people who just would listen, like music lovers, just listening from when the sun went down to when it came up. Going to a few of those festivals was like, okay, you know what? This is what uh, this is what I think I want to do, you know, with my life. That's great. I was going to ask if you if you kind of like when that when that occurred to you that you could do this for your life. And um, on those festivals, was there a specific one that you remember or any any shows or, or performances at, at those festivals? Because those are all like you said, jam packed with music. I'm sure there's a lot of memories, but anything that like stands out to you at this point? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, 
the very first one we went to, it, there was a few bands, but one of them was was seeing the police. Uh, so this was the police when they were on their reunion tour. We had waited in line so we could be right up front, uh, front oh, nice. row in the pit, and just hey, you know, I'm you know, a psychedelic involved, and we had a few drinks, so we were all feeling pretty good. But <laughs> as soon as we were a few feet away and watching Sting, you know, walk on stage, he was wearing these big army boots up to his knees and he was just walking around like almost just stomping around that stage with his bass and I would watch his feet and then I watch his fingers and he just he blew me away of like how he was singing these complicated melodies and then these bass lines were just mind-blowing and then I would look back and see Stuart and Stuart was just you know tearing apart his drums but he was also so masterful in what he was doing and Andy like I just yeah that was that was a moment just being like whoa uh these guys are exceptional like they're not just sitting up there uh, which there's, no, there's nothing wrong with getting up there and just bashing away as hard as you can, and it's all about the atti- <laughs> the attitude. I love that. I mean, that's half of what we do. But watching really skilled musicians just do something effortlessly—that was something I was like, I want to learn how to do that. And uh, a few hours after that concert, there was a, a late night show with uh, Government Mule, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Warren Haynes, and that was another moment where I I just. I I was just sitting there watching and he had brought out all these guest musicians. He brought out John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin and they did uh, four or five Zeppelin tracks. And I just remember thinking about where I was in my life and thinking about the job that I was in and thinking about the steps that it would take to go to pursue a life in music. All that stuff was just racing around my head for like the rest of the night. I was like, oh man, like, because I think everybody's the same way. When you experience or you brush up against something like that, that feeling where you're like, whoa, you know, like it, it strikes a nerve in some, in some, in something about it. And you can't just easily shake it and you go back to your day job on Monday and be like, yeah, that was great. And then it's also the atmosphere too. Everybody else that's there <laughs> around you, you, you get to find a, a shared experience with people who love music just as much as you do. And sometimes it's, uh, that in itself is pretty special. How old were you then? 20 or 21? 21? Yeah, something around. So you were you were already playing music at that time and you already knew Eric cuz I know you guys have been friends for a long time, right? Oh yeah, we yeah, we we met each other in kindergarten and we became friends in kindergarten and remained friends for all you know for all the way up until this point. Yeah, we didn't we, me and him didn't start playing music until oh, maybe high school like I want to hear about like what happened after after Bonnaroo because it sounds like did you go back to Canada and you guys were like all right that's it we're forming a band we were already playing jamming together and we were already playing music and uh, you know we would get together and rehearse you know after school and just jam you know covers and stuff so I think that was uh, that was something that we we were already doing but when you go to an, have an experience like that at Bonnaroo or there was other, many other festivals like Wakarusa. There was a, a festival in Michigan that was pretty profound, but I don't think it exists anymore. It's called Rothbury. Yeah, I know yeah. that yeah. yeah, so there was there, yeah, a few of those moments that just really knocked, I mean, I can't speak for Eric, but you know, definitely knocked me uh, off my feet of like, okay, you can make a living this way, just you know, playing festivals and whatnot. So I think that's kind of what inspired me to want to wanna really, because I'd always messed around with writing songs, but you know, they, I didn't really take it as seriously as, as I, I really thought I could. So I think it was after a few of those scenarios that it was like, okay, I want to really sit down and figure out what it takes to uh, really create something, create a song that I, that I can feel proud of and then also make a real run at uh, pursuing music, you know. At what point did you and Eric decide to move to Austin? Like, when when does that come into the timeline? So, me and Eric played in a, a band for for a few years in Toronto, uh, where we we had a bass player. Actually, we had two different bass players. Funny enough, the bass players just never worked. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, we we played for a few years in Toronto, and we made a real run at that, and you know, did the circuit, played all the clubs, and um, and I think it was the music that we were choosing to play more of a uh, 
I don't know, something that was a little bit more tied to the South, a little bit more, you know, hints of blues and a little bit more of a, like, you know, a little bit of an old, older school rock, rock and roll vibe. But in Toronto at that time, I think, I just don't think that was something that uh, was really popular on the scene. And so, yeah, it just came down to, uh, I was working in a nine to five job that I was like, ah, this is definitely not what I want to do. And, and also me and my, my now wife were doing long, a long distance relationship for uh, an entire year. And we both said, okay, this is enough. A year is too long. Me and her had agreed, okay, well, I'm going to quit my job. And you're going to, she said she was going to quit her job and said, let's just pack up a car. Uh, you can fly and meet me in Calgary. And we're all just drive down to Austin because we talked about mo- moving down there. And I remember that, you know, so clearly it was just like, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, really going to go, going to go just quit this job that, you know, <laughs> even my parents were like, are you sure you want to do this? You want to drive it? Because if, if in, in a weird way, it felt like driving down to like Hollywood to make it as an actor. You're like, I'm going to LA. I'm going to make it as an actor. And uh, that's what it kind of felt like. But, you know, when you're young and you're just so obs- obsessed with a goal oriented uh, mentality, I was like, nah, I just want to be around good musicians. And uh, so I, I remember um, talking to Eric and the other gentleman who was in the band at the time time saying, Hey man, I, I, you know, I think I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna move down to Austin and uh, you know, I think I just, something I want to do. I'm feeling really pulled to do it. I let those guys know. And when I told Eric, he was like, you know what? Uh, it's like, I, I'd also like to go down to Austin as well. And, uh, you know, so if, if that's cool, I'd love to go down too. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, well, it'd be great to know at least one person when, when we got down there. That's, that's kind of like how that whole thing came down. And Austin was just always on the, on the radar because it was like, that's the live music mecca. It was literally like Nashville or or Austin, and uh, I think we just got pulled down to Austin first and uh, never left, never left. Yeah. Suck its claws in us, yeah. Amazing. Was it let's take our band to Austin, or was it like let's move down there and see what happens? Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't uh, let's take this band that we were playing in Toronto, let's let's go down to Austin. This was something that I I really found a, a, a hard struggle with, like trying to let the other guys in the band know, like, hey... Uh, I just think, uh, you know, I need a, a different landscape right now to like, you know, pull something out of me musically. And I also think, you know, just a place like Austin, you're going to be surrounded by many of the same like-minded people who are going there to pursue music. And I, I want to be around those people. And so when Eric w- w- was interested in coming down as well, and he expressed interest, I was like, yeah, that's great because then it's not, I'm not going to have to be you know, searching around, probably playing open mics and trying to, hey, you play drums? Oh, we should jam sometime. You know, like, it was already great, but I don't think there was any real, you know, that was the the, the intention at all, is to like, oh, we're going to start this band down in Austin. I think it was like, hey, you know, let's, you know, let's play music, you know, and that's what we did. And it's funny enough that, because uh, Eric had went down to Austin before me, like uh, maybe a few days or a week before, but he had started booking shows uh, for us, which was funny. And I, and I remember being on the phone with him saying, well, what are you doing? We don't have a bass player. Like, why are you booking shows? And <laughs> because we we had always rehearsed or we had always jammed together, just the two of us, anyways. And I remember one night at a party, we were playing a buddy's party in his backyard, and something happened with the, our bass player's amp, and it just shorted out. So we were like, okay, well, let's just keep playing until he figures that out. And I remember a, a few of our buddies came up. We we're like. Hey man, when you all were just jamming together, that was badass. That was great. And I remember thinking like, oh, okay. And that just kind of like, remember, I just stuck in the back of my head for a little while. But yeah, anyway, so when I, basically when we got down to Austin, there was already a show on the books. And I remember that first, first couple of shows, to be honest, were just complete improv jams for 20 to 30 minutes uh, with no songs, you know. And I, wow. I I still remember those days as being really, really fun. Like, I think about that as music at its purest, like just being uh, enjoyable and fun. You know, not when you're trying to craft something. You're just go, going up there and you're just flying by the seat of your pants. You're just whatever's coming out of you. And that's a great thing about improv and jam is that when it hits, it's the most beautiful thing in the world, at least for the musicians that are communicating with each other. But on, But when it doesn't hit... It's awful. It's just awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what happened between like this point and then the, the release of the first album, which I know you guys released yourselves in 2011, how many years and, and what was that path like getting to the point where you guys were like, well, this is a band and let's put out an album. I think we realized we were a band after we made our first record. And, and the, and the only oh, reason, wow. yeah, the only reason why we made the, uh, an album was because people started coming out to our shows in Austin and people would ask, Oh, do you guys, do you guys have any music? Do you have, do you have a record? Do you have this? Well, maybe we should just all these songs that we've been playing over the past year, maybe we should just record those. And it was funny because it, I think it was during a South by Southwest, what, whatever year that was, maybe 2010, uh, I, I gentleman by the name of Jim Diamond, who was the engineer. I don't know if it exists anymore. I think it might've shut down, but ghetto recorders in Detroit. And that's, that's where the, the white stripes recorded their first couple records with, with this gentleman, Jim Diamond. And I mean, we had heard it about his reputation. It was like, you know, Oh, you guys are a two piece band. Well, this is the guy you want to want to work with. And, uh, he came down and I remember he, he came up to a show and he really, really dug the show. And he said, yeah, man, if you guys want to make a record, you know, Come on up to Detroit and we'll and we'll do it. And uh, we ended up doing that. I think it was in the winter, in the winter of 2010 or nine. And uh, my memory's so hazy. That's why <laughs> that's why it would be good to have Eric right now because he'd be like, it was December 2009. It was a three o'clock <laughs> on an afternoon when we arrived at the studio. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, we went and did uh, we did like 13 songs in in oh maybe a day, a day and a half. I think it was like 18 hours total, 17 or 18 hours total for the whole, our whole album. And it was done. Those were the days where it's like, let's just get a record done. Let's just finish this record. So we can have something to sell at the shows. So you guys go all the way back almost to where you came from to, to, to do this first album. That's <laughs> you go right. all the way back to Detroit. Yeah. Had you decided, I mean, I guess, cause you guys were playing and you decided to record an album. Were you guys sold on the duo? I mean, were you like this, this is going to work at that point? To be honest, not I, I don't know. I don't think we ever even thought of that. I think we were just playing shows in town and, you know, more and more people would start to come out to the shows and we were just like, you know, we eventually get a bass player, then we do, if if not. And believe me, that's all we ever heard for years after the show. Hey, you guys looking for a bass player? Here's my card, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and you know what? I think at the end of the day, it just felt easier to do things uh, as a duo because it was very easy to communicate musically. When you bring somebody else to the mix, it adds a different element. But if I, if we were jamming, say, uh, improv, playing a live show, and I was in the key of A, but then, you know, I wanted to fire it up to C and then switch up, you know, to halftime, Eric will pick that up right away and vice versa. Like, we'll play off each other. You bring a bass player into the mix, he's going to be like, what are y'all doing? What are y'all doing here? What are y'all doing? <laughs> you know? So I think we didn't want to mess with that too much is just having that freedom to... Uh, to kind of really go wherever we wanted to live. So, yeah, I don't cool. think that, yeah, that was on our minds. So I want to ask you about your collaboration with Eric and because it's lasted for a long time, you know, friendship wise, but also you guys are, are on the verge of putting out um, an, another album, which I think will be your sixth album uh, soon. Yeah. What's made that work? What do you guys each bring to the collaboration? When it comes to to the live aspect, we both treat the li our live shows like it's... Um, you know, in a weird way, maybe our last show. We always go out there, and it's funny, whenever we're done, we come back to the dressing room just drenched in sweat. I can't even breathe, uh, you know, and, and we're both just annihilated. And I think that's the way we started out playing because we would play to nobody in clubs in Austin or we'd play like three or four South by Southwest in a row. And your main goal is to just get somebody's attention. So we would just play our asses off as much as we could. And it was always with the intent to like, oh, that guy, you know, that couple in the back, they're talking, they're drinking a beer, they're not even paying attention. Okay, well, let's let's make them pay attention. Let's, mm -hmm. let's do something. And uh, that was many years of that. So and I don't think that ever went away. So our live shows, we both attack it in a, in a very uh, uh, fierce way where we we want to go out there and just give it as much, like every ounce. But, you know, when it comes to recording and, and all that stuff, you know, that's something that's evolved over the, the since the, the very first album, you know, getting into getting into production now and, you know, and realizing what that is. Um, yeah, it's it's always great. I, I, I think the, the reason why we've been, you know, able to sustain being in a band for so long for 10 years is it's just we both love what we do. And uh, 
when it comes to like getting together, if I write a song and I show it to Eric, in, almost instantly we'll be able to click together and get that get that point across. And that's kind of where our our you know, our chemistry is. And it's funny we always talk about chemistry in interviews, like oh you develop chemistry, and now I think I'm starting to realize what that is. Because uh, when you start to venture out and play with other players, you realize that uh, when you have a chemistry with somebody, it's almost like they have a an idea of what you're looking for or what you think you're looking for. So when if I play a certain riff and he plays a, a drum beat, um, it's almost like, oh, and then if I'm going up to a different section, he, he's going to do this and I'm going to do this. And it's, it's really just a communication, like uh, the way we communicate with each other. And sometimes, you know, you can get a little predictable with that. You know, you can be like, oh, okay, we know exactly where we're, each of us are going to go, which is good and bad. But I think on, on, a, on the bigger scale, it's, it's always a good thing to have somebody who's that closely in line with where you, you, you tend to go sometimes. It seems like personality-wise, at least based on the couple of stories you've mentioned about Eric, I don't know him, but it sounds like you guys have complementary kind of different personalities as well that probably work together in terms of a, just a partnership. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the thing that I think most people wouldn't really get too much of an insight into is that uh, when you play in a band with somebody, it's a, it's a very intimate, especially if it's a band that's that that's busy. And we're we're very we've been busy since, you know, since things started to pick up steam for us. But, you know, you're around these people or, and or me and Eric, we're around each other all the time and it almost becomes like a marriage in itself. You have to maintain that, nurture it, because you want the music to be as best as possible. And and that, for that, you need to both kind of collaborate in a way that's healthy, you know, because I've seen a lot of bands, you know, burn out from, you know, too much of the same thing or uh, no breaks and too much touring, all that stuff. So, yeah. So I think for us, it's uh, we both have a healthy way of looking at it, knowing when we need to step back and be like, let's take a break or whatever. I want to talk to you a little bit about your sound and, and the, the band because we haven't talked a lot about the music. You alluded to this before that you guys get compared to the White Stripes or Black Keys or other duos who play mm-hmm. awesome rock music, um, which is probably a simple, you know, overly simplistic comparison. But what makes a difference to you in terms of two people having to put on a rock show versus, I don't know, three or four or more? Like, what do you need to do that you might not have to do if you were in a four-piece rock band? The way uh, I I think that I'm realizing it now is is uh, some people would talk about space, you know, like, oh, it's the space, you know, with uh, when there's less is more, there's just more space. And that's, that's a good thing. So sometimes I feel like for me, like the insecurity part of myself or my brain will want to fill that space, you know, because really when you when you're only working in the confines of two people and you're, and you've stripped things down to just their bare elements, it's very exposing, you know, it's very, uh, you're very naked. And so it's like, uh, if I make a mistake on the guitar or Eric, you know, you know, has a sloppy fill or something, everyone's going to hear it. There's nowhere to hide. No, there's nowhere to hide, which is, it can be terrifying, but it could also be very, uh, it can be very liberating. And it can also be very rewarding when you both hit it, you know, and, and, and it's great. So um, I think uh, that's that's what it's like for me when I go out on stage, and I'm sure it's the same for Eric, is that you're very exposed and on any given night, if you kind of think about that too much, uh, then that's when I think you run into trouble or I start to, you know, over second guess things or whatever. But, um, yeah, sometimes, you know, there's been times in the past where I've wanted to fill the space with more guitar playing or like more, uh, fill out stuff. So it sounds bigger because if you're an opening band opening for some other bigger, bigger band, that's got like six, seven in- instrumentation, you know, people in the band, uh, you're like, how, how, how are you, you going to compete or, or, or how are you going to, you know, produce, you know, the same quality of sound or show that these people do. I also realize that I think when you strip it down to the core, I think a lot of people like seeing things pulled back, seeing, seeing what's behind the curtain and seeing somebody stumble through a lyric or uh, a part. And then, you know, just snap right back and truck through like i think it gives a sense of rawness and and realness a little bit too do you think about the guitar in your shows as needing to fill like the role of a guitar and bass and keys and whatever else or or do you not see it that way 
in the early days, I, I, de- I definitely thought that uh, the, the guitar was w- how we were going to shift dynamics. That and the way the, the drum arrangements would go, because I thought about that stuff endlessly of like, okay, well, if we just keep the verses as a four on the floor on the bass drum, on the kick drum, and then just the, the guitar would, you know, only use the low E and the A as like root bass accents, then uh, that will give a vibe that oh yeah that's this is kind of more of a stripped down verse and then slapping on the fuzz and full-on strumming chord or, or riff and splashy cymbals and big snares and you know that that will achieve the big chorus you know so that that's yeah. the way i kind of always thought you know for a two-piece band to like you know explore those things but not so much now and a lot of that comes down to Eric. Well, Eric has, has been learning how to play the keys, uh, the synthesizer, bass synthesizer. Like uh, Okay. And so on certain songs, he's been playing the bass uh, notes with his left hand and then doing, you know, the hi-hat and the snare with his right. So, you know, on songs like Speak of the Devil or Bully and stuff, uh, when the chorus is hit, boom, you know, that bass, that big synth bass comes in and it just fills out so much bottom end that it's allowed me to, to relieve myself of like worrying the worry of oh we got to make this course sound bigger and also getting to do more lead work uh in the first you know three or four albums that we did i hardly ever did any lead lead like mm-hmm, guitar mm-hmm. solos because it just it never sounded right when you do a lead guitar without any rhythm underneath it, it yeah <laughs> uh just yeah for me my ear just never it never sounded right but now that's opened up a whole different uh element especially with like the newer albums and stuff that we can actually perform live, you know? If you were talking to a, an aspiring musician who was thinking about forming a band with one other person and, and were, they were just starting out, is there any advice you would give them? Oh, man, that's, uh, that's always high-pressure advice. Yeah, what are you going to say? Um, I, I, honestly, it would just be to get out and play. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, emphasis put on, like, oh, you know, just practice and hone your craft and you know work on all this stuff and i think that's important too like if, whether your guitar player drummer is you know lear- learn the basic elements uh in terms of scales and you know fills or whatever you you know just to get yourself at first but i think where you really cut your teeth and you find out what kind of musician you want to be is by getting out in front of people and performing and seeing how you interact and see how you react to what the audience is doing. And yeah, and just, I think it's just about playing live. And then that, that's where you, you translate that into the studio. It sounds like taking the live experience to the studio is how you guys have, have evolved. And I wanted to ask, you have five albums out and a sixth coming out soon. How has your sound evolved over time, like to your ear? What do you hear in your most recent 2017 album that you didn't in earlier albums? My brain always go, focuses on the writing. And uh, so I listen to the the, I, the beginning, the first couple records, and I think, okay, I, I know what kind of state of mind or place I was in when I was writing. I was like, oh, you know, this is, I wanted to create a party, uh, you know, have some songs to, so that when we played a live show, it, it would just put out the vibe and everyone would just want to party. And then now when I see it now, I see the production, like more, you know, subtle instrumentations, not overdubbing for the sake of overdubbing but overdubbing because it actually serves the song better because we did go through stages where if in the studio it'd be like oh man i hear i hear a hammond organ right here doing this or i hear this other other instrument doing this and then it was like nah we can't do that because how are we going to do it live how are we going to do this live and i think now for me that that doesn't bother me at all anymore it's like hey let's just make the best possible song and then we'll figure out how to translate that for live and uh we'll figure it out so when i listen to old records as to new records i just see an evolution of not only uh the writing but the actual sound the sound production everything uh us and it's also us taking our you know uh what we do a little bit more seriously like you know, taking a little bit more time, like ah, oh, that snare's that snare's not doesn't sound right, or the guitar is a little too muddy. Let's let's try mm-hmm. to roll back on the fuzz. Where I think in the early days it was just like shoot from the hip, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a little more refined, which you know I do miss the older uh, kind of winging it attitude. But yeah, no, I, I think that there's definitely just a little bit more of a refined sound. 
I want to ask you about the new album because I understand that there was a guy involved named Vance Powell mm-hmm. who, um, you know, he, he obviously is kind of a legendary uh, producer, but tell us how that came together and, and what you've learned working with him. So we were in the process of, we, I think we had done about half of this album, uh, maybe five, four, four or five songs, and, uh, and then we had to hit the road for some reason, and we were out in the road. And then, you know, regrouping after two was th- the, the mentality I was thinking was like, you know what, I want to I shake it up a little bit. You know, I want to start seeing what other studios or other engineers or producers we can work with to see what results they can pull out, out of us in the studio. And... Uh, I remember I was in that mindset for a couple of weeks and then I heard on the radio, I was driving in Austin on KUTX, uh, which is a great local radio station here in Austin, but I was driving on the highway and I heard this song and I can't remember who the, the, uh, the artist's name was, but he, this person was a, an Austin bass band as well. And I just remember thinking, whoa, that, those drums sound great. Like really like a phenomenal sounding recording. I really, really dug that, that the drum sound. So I remember, you know, uh, getting home and, and Googling like, oh, who, who, who did this track? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I saw the name Vance Powell. I started going down the rabbit hole. I'm like, all right, what else has this guy done? Uh, and then I was like, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and I was like, maybe this was all meant to be because like not only, you know, we talk about tours, Dead Weather, but then Chris Stapleton's Grammy Award winning album. Uh, and then, yeah, Stuff with Fish and uh, yeah, Clutch. Um, yeah, there was there's just so many uh, check marks. I was like, oh man, I don't know if this guy would even bother working with us. Uh, so... I had asked Eric, I said, can you, can you see if you can reach out to like maybe somebody in his camp, see if we, you know, and he did. And then, uh, he got back to us, uh, his, his management and said, yeah, you know, he's, he's down. And so we, uh, we booked a, a flight to Nashville for about four days, four or five days. And we cut like two or three songs with him in his studio, uh, and that was our introduction to him. That was like us kind of opening the door a little bit. And so uh, and then we ended up having him just mix the entire album, even a, a lot of the songs that were previously recorded and mixed and mastered. We had bands go in and remix and remaster just so we would have a cohesive thread, a sonic thread throughout the whole album. And uh, that's kind of what, you know, brought us to Vance's, uh, our relationship together. People who don't know like what a you know producer really does like what what does someone like Vance add to what you guys have done on your own? We only uh, cut a few tracks with him in the studio, uh, so. Um when we worked with him in the studio, you know, he was very uh, focused on achieving the right sound. So if it was the drum sounds or the guitar, it was about, you know, getting the right, uh, getting the right pedals, the right amp, the right combination of that. Uh, and then it's the same with the drums, you know, this snare with that kick, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then I think it, for us, it was more, we saw the real uh, special quality in Vance when we were, wa- we were watching him do the mix because we had to get these songs that we just recorded mixed before we flew home back to Austin. And just sitting and watching him mix uh, the songs, I, I, was, I was just blown away because w- I remember when we shared some of those some of those mixes with our friends and people that have known us for a long time and our music were just floored. They're like, whoa, they're like, this is by far like some of like the best sounding stuff we've ever heard you guys do. And, uh, and we were just, we were just very excited about that of at least moving into a a different area that was exciting. So, um, as a producer, I think he's, I think, you know, getting to work with him in in the studio with hands on sonic, uh, sonic scaping, you know, trying to build sounds. I, he's, he's phenomenal. Uh, but the majority of this record was, was produced by uh, a gentleman by the name is Jacob Skiba, who we've worked with on the last two albums of ours. And, uh, so yeah, but the producing cool. roles are are always kind of all over the place on this on this album. They're they're all over the map. I want to ask you a little bit about what you've been putting your creative energy into now that you've been off the road. It sounds like this album probably was part of your focus, but what else have you been putting your creative energy into? You know, for the first couple of months during the during the the pandemic, um, there was a lot of focus on the album still because uh, we had run into a few little hurdles in terms of uh, 
pre-orders and like needing extra tracks and stuff. So, you know, a couple songs on the record, I, I, I had to actually do at home. You know, I had to like, you know, do, yeah, record the majority of it and, uh, you know, write and record it all from home. And so that, that was like, uh, a very new thing that I've never done before. So uh, it, that opened the door for me to learning how to, you know, properly, you know, kind of record, engineer, and mix, and and utilize production ideas at home. Where I think that's what, what during the pandemic, uh, a lot of people, and especially in music, have been forced to kind of learn how to do things they normally wouldn't uh, have thought they would try to attempt to do and whether that be like you know engineering and especially with live streams and even with the podcast things you know learning how to set up a mic to an interface and then splitting the <laughs> channel through a video thing there's all kinds of stuff so um but mostly i've been spending my time is just writing and recording and uh working on a few projects um gibson gibson guitars um who um i work with they uh, don't Donated me a uh, Gibson Les Paul guitar to uh, paint, do some like visual art and paint on it, and we're gonna donate that and auction it off for uh, charity for the uh, you know the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, frontline healthcare workers. And so we're nice. doing stuff like that. We're working on trying to get a live stream together soon. And honestly, yeah, man, just just trying to I, you know work from home as much as I can because there's that. Uh, there's always going to be that part of me that's always like, hey, you got all this time to write. Because, you know, when you're on the road, it's not that easy to sit down and write and, like, create. So this is just, like, a wide-open lane for that. And I want to I want to try my best to, to get as much done as possible. Do you guys consider yourself a Canadian band or an American band? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. And it, it really sparks that... Uh, you know, that division in us where, what do we do? What do we say here? Um, it's really hard because the, this band didn't uh, exist in Canada. And it was it was born, Black Pistol Fire was born in Austin, Texas. So it feels very like it is an American band. Uh, but us being Canadian, you know, that's... And also uh, the, the support that we've received in Canada over the last couple of years has just been insane. Uh, you know, with our last album, Dead Be Graffiti... Um, uh, our song "Lost Cause" was the number one. It was number one rock, uh, rock on the alternative charts for a good, you know, few months, four months, three or three months, and then it was the overall most played rock 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 song of 2018. Uh, so um, when we go up to Canada now, we're just so grateful because, uh, yeah, we have great fans up there and great support from all the uh, any outlets up there. So, you know, it's hard. It's hard to. Decide which we other what we are I, I just assume yeah. <laughs> to say that we're both uh when we're you know but the band was born down here but uh we were born up there so i don't know you decide, yeah. you decide. all right if the listeners can decide <laughs> um it's amazing though that so many canadian artists become you know big in in the u.s there's there's lots of examples oh yeah you know the band of course and Joni mitchell and neil young and arcade fire more recently there, there's probably many many others that you could name off but what do you think there's something about the canadian scene or, or even the toronto scene that you grew up in that that allowed you to kind of pursue the path that you pursued or or do you view it as just like that's just where you came from i'm wondering if there's something yeah. that you see that's a little bit different about about canada musically the states, there's just more more places to play for 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 starters. When it comes to traveling or touring, the the U.S. is such a massively bigger market than Canada for music. So a lot of people ask us in interviews, like, "Wow, you know, isn't it weird that you had to go down to the states to get recognition in Canada?" And I, 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 was, <laughs> I was, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I I really felt like it was the best thing to do for us as a band is to is to spend time in the states and and try to really cut our teeth down there and see if we can uh hold our own in terms of you know getting out on tour playing festivals and then um but yeah many years went by where you know we had uh, we'd try we would go back up to canada and uh, you know 
It would just be a little bit tougher. But then you get a little play on the radio, and now we go up there, and it's great. So it's uh, it's a tricky thing. And, and vice versa, too. There's so many amazing, amazing Canadian bands that will sell out arenas in Canada. Like, literally, uh, like mm. huge hockey mm-hmm. arenas. And they come down to um, the States, and they'll barely fill a, a 150 club, 150 cap room. Um, and it's just the way the market is. You know, the U.S. is just... Mm. Uh, it's a big bigger pond or but yeah i haven't really spent too much time trying to analyze why that is and i just yeah. think it's more of a you know uh, a market issue of like it, the u.s has just got so much more more outlets you know if you um had to give some advice to the kevin of 20 years ago huh. is there anything that you would look back and tell yourself uh, yeah. So I was the guy. I was a. I, I was a very. Uh, you know, just crazy, uh, crazy individual as a young tyke. Uh, in my teens, I would get in. Yeah, I got in trouble with the law a little bit. Yeah, I got suspended like you know twenty six times in one year for school. And you know now, you know, and I remember you know all the guys got me a cake for the last year. I got suspended for the last time I got suspended. But yeah, it was all for like really goof stuff. I was just I was uh, always you know uh, you know tagged. As the class clown, and and uh, mm-hmm. I thought I would end up doing some kind of weird, you know, career in comedy or something. Like I just, yeah, and I didn't really have any. Uh, so I don't know what I would tell that person because uh, I'm pretty grateful of where I ended up now. So I think I would maybe just tell him to figure out what he's passionate about really like you know uh, I think even from at that age I knew it was music so I think I would just say hey you know you know figure out what you're passionate about and uh, really um, really just kind of hone in on that because I I do look back and say oh man if I just kind of you know, stopped messing around so much and stopped goofing off. And I just like, oh, you know, really started playing more music and spent time just really honing the craft a little more. Maybe, you know, maybe it'd be a little bit further along now, but ah, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to play that game. I'm quite grateful for everything that that uh, music has provided uh, this band. And uh, so uh, that's why I continue to just, you know, work, work my keister off. I'm just grateful that uh, I can still play music, you know. That's awesome, man. Well, congrats on getting the new album together. Looking forward to hearing it. And, and thank you for taking so much time to chat with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, and uh, I appreciate it. I really dig the podcast, man. So keep doing what y'all doing. Cool. Thanks, man. And now here's Kevin performing Level, Hope in Hell, and Don't Be Cruel. Take what you can get or just settle for the rest. Worn out to welcome, babe, don't take it so long. I ain't working awful hard to keep you right where you want. Soft and sweet to cut you like a whisper in the dark. Sing
Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love.